Welcome once again to the Realizing Romans class. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9, uh, but before we begin, let's go ahead and uh, open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your guidance and illumination through the Holy Spirit thus far as we've traveled in through this long letter to the Roman congregations. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would once again uh, shed your grace upon us and uh, that your Holy Spirit would come and illuminate our hearts and our minds, prime them for understanding because our carnal minds just can't grasp the spiritual concepts that are that are there and uh, if we just read it in our flesh it's just going to sound silly and foolish and so lord we ask that you help us to understand your word what it meant when paul wrote it what he meant when he wrote it but how we can apply those same principles today even though times have changed the human nature has not changed therefore whatever's in the scriptures is relevant for right here and right now and lord we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in yeshua's name Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start out with an example. Let's say that there is an army platoon, and there's a mission, and the sergeant is in his tent, in his office, and he's making plans. He's thinking in his head who's going to be best for this mission. Somebody's got to head up this mission. So he already picks people in his head who he wants on this particular mission. He calls the platoon together. They gather around. And he says, all right, you, you know, uh, Corporal so-and-so, you're going to be the head of this little mission. And I want you to take private so-and-so and private this and that and private thus and the other. Those men have been predestined. They never volunteered. They never even thought to ask. They had no idea that there was going to be a mission. But yet they were chosen. They were predestined. They were elect ahead of time, if you will. And that's the way it is with God. Uh, when it talks about in Romans, a lot of people want to apply salvation issues to issues that aren't salvation issues. When people read Romans, they read it from a Gentile perspective and a Protestant theological perspective to where, to where they, you know, they, they, they apply this predestination and this elect to situations that aren't dealing with salvation at all. So we're going to get into that here in Romans. So Romans 9, obviously, is a continuation of Romans chapter 8, because when Paul wrote this, there was no verses, there was no chapter divisions. So uh, the church does not replace Israel. That's a popular teaching in um, some Protestant circles, is that, oh, well, the Israel had their chance. God did everything for them, um, but they were disobedient, and as a result, he not only exiled him, but they cut him out of the covenant, and now he's making them jealous by bringing in the spiritual Israel, the grafted-in Israel. He's bringing in Gentiles who's going to obey him, and they're the new Israel. It's called the church. Well, no, because if that was true, then God cannot be trusted. If that is true, then that makes God a liar. If that was true, then it means God reneges on all of his covenants, and he cannot be trusted. So it's true that the Gentiles are grafted in, but the promises are first and foremost given to Israel. They have been chosen. They will always be chosen. God will always use them. He will never forsake them, no matter how disobedient they are. 
And uh, so that's kind of a little bit what we're going to get into. So this Romans 9, in the Tree of Life version, it says the role of Israel. But this is also the, the, um, the predestination, if you will, of Israel. So let's begin by reading the first five verses and kind of dig into this. The Apostle Paul, Rav Shul, says, I tell you the truth in Messiah, I do not lie. My conscience assuring me in the Ruach HaKodesh, in the Holy Spirit, that my sorrow is great and the anguish in my heart unending. For I would pray that I myself were cursed, banished from Messiah for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood. Who does Paul sound like when he, when he talks that way? He sounds like an Israeli, yes, but a particular Israeli. Pharisee. No, 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 it doesn't sound like a Pharisee. I mean, he was writing as a Pharisee, but listen to this again and think back to the, to, to the Old Testament. He says, For I would pray that I myself were cursed, banished from Messiah, my own flesh and blood, for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood. Who else, way back when, said something very similar to God? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Moses. Yes, very good. So I want to read that because it just reminds me, and maybe Paul had this in mind when he, when he wrote this. But in Exodus chapter 32, beginning with the verse 31, this was after the whole golden calf debacle. And it says, Then Moses returned to Adonai and said, Alas, these people have sinned greatly and made gods of gold. Yet now, please forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Paul says, I wish that I could be accursed if it meant my people Israel would be saved. And here, Moses was ready to throw away his eternity for the sake of Israel. If you're not going to forgive Israel, then don't forgive me. In verse 33 in Exodus 32 says, And Adonai said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will not blot out of my book. So, all right. Now, uh, verses 1 through, this is 1 through 3, and continuing on with 4 and 5, we'll just read 3 again. For I pray that I myself were cursed, banished from Messiah for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood, um, who are Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the Torah and the temple service and the promises. Paul says to them it was given these things, not to the Gentiles, not to the Gentiles that are getting saved, that are actually outdoing Israel in obedience to God. There is no replacement theology here. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, the Messiah. The Messiah was born a Jew. He was born of, of, of Israeli descent. He wasn't born a Gentile. And from them, according to the flesh, the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So this should settle the issue. Do Jews have to accept Yeshua as the Messiah to be saved? Yes. Do they have to accept Yeshua the Messiah to go to heaven? Yes. Because who was it that said, I don't care if you're sons of Abraham. God could raise up these stones to be sons of Abraham. Jesus, Jesus said that. He's like, just, just because you uh, have uh, Abraham's DNA in your body doesn't mean you're going to get a free ticket to heaven. Doesn't mean that God's going to overlook uh, your sins and then punish the Gentile sins. 
So just because they're God's chosen people doesn't mean they get out, uh, they get a get out of hell free card. All right, so back to verse one. I tell you the truth of Messiah, I do not lie. My conscience assuring me in the Ruach HaKodesh, in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that assists us in making the right choices. Remember the last couple chapters we talked about the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination, and the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. So it's, you know, we don't need any help with the evil inclination because we're fallen. We just naturally want to do bad things. And it's hard for us to want to do good things unless there's some kind of benefit for us. So it's the Holy Spirit that helps us and assists us and assists the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination, to make good choices. And how is it that the Holy Spirit guides us? What does the Holy Spirit use to help us to make the right choices? The words of Jesus. The words of Jesus, the words of God, right. And the only words of Jesus is Jesus is only quoting and backing up what was already said before in, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the Tanakh. So that's how the Holy Spirit guides us, is through the words of Torah and through the words of Messiah. All right, verses 2 and 3. Uh, that my sorrow is great and anguish in my heart unending. For I would pray that I myself were cursed, banished from Messiah, for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood. Now, before somebody dies and goes to hell... If they're living in disobedience against God, there's a lot of curses that will fall upon them prior to their death and eternal demise. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and also in Leviticus chapter 26 spells out what the curses are. And here Paul says, for I pray that I myself were cursed, that I were cursed with all of the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Leviticus 28. And there's a lot of them. I'd be willing to go through all that if I could see my people Israel saved. All right, verses 4 and 5. Uh, who are Israelites? To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the Torah. So, okay, before there was Torah, there was covenants. There was covenants prior to Torah. Torah in and of itself is a covenant. There's like seven or eight covenants. You have the... Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the renewed covenant. So you have all these. So Torah is just one in the midst of a lot of covenants. So he mentions covenants in the plural. To them, to Israel, belongs the adoption. Out of all the nations, they were picked by God, predestined, elect by God. For no other choice but God's own, because God is perfect, God is sovereign, God could do whatever he wants. To them belong the adoption and the glory, because God's going to glorify them, and he's going to make the world's spotlight shine upon them. The world's attention is always going to be upon Israel. I mean, even in the news, they're always painted as bad guys, but they're in the news all the time. Everybody talks about them. You either love them or hate them kind of deal. Belong the covenants and the giving of the Torah, and the temple service. Nobody's allowed to serve in the temple unless they're from the Levitical clan, the Levitical tribe. And the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, which would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them, according to the flesh, the Messiah. So from Abraham, there came Judah. From Judah, eventually came Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah from that tribe. Who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. 
So it's the line of Isaac, not the line of Ishmael. So we know that Ishmael is older. He was the firstborn of Abraham, but he was not the firstborn of the promise. He was the firstborn of the flesh. And he was the firstborn of the flesh because Abraham got a little antsy waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And Sarah convinced him, saying, well, maybe this is what God meant. Go to my handmaid, Hagar. And so Ishmael was born. Now, did God just say, well, he's not mine. Forget that. Forget Ishmael. No. He loved Ishmael equally. Because if you read the blessing of Ishmael, it's identical to the blessing of Isaac. Minus the fact that he uh, is leader over the, you know, the, the covenants and the oracles, and he carries on the family line and the family name. Other than that, Ishmael had all of the, the, the identical blessings that Isaac had. So he loved him just as equally. So I have here, therefore, the spiritual birthright to lead the world to light, the ones to be blessed to be a blessing, from the word to Messiah, from the written and living Torah. So this all came from Isaac. It didn't come from Ishmael, but that's okay. Um, now, verses 4 and 5, as I said, they're comments for Israel, not the church. The church, the Gentiles, they would be brought in later. They were brought in later, kind of midway through the book of Acts. Now, it says that to them belong the covenants forever. So forever means forever. So God can't say, oh, I changed my mind. I don't like these people anymore, so I'm going to make my covenant with somebody else. Then God, he would be double-minded. God would be a liar. God could not be trusted. So it says these covenants and these patriarchs and all these things are God's for, are, are the Israel's forever. So, um, you know, to me, this verse just puts the nail in the coffin for uh, against the replacement theology. Okay. <laughs> so, all right, we have the spiritual blessing. Now, the spiritual blessing means that Israel, or that through Isaac, Israel is the primary custodians of the oracles of God. So with great blessing comes great responsibility. So what if you're chosen by God? A lot of people don't want to be chosen by God because they don't want the responsibility. It's a heavy-duty responsibility to be chosen by God, to be called by God. And that was Israel's responsibility, is to carry on and be custodians of the oracles of God, which were God's words, what God expects from mankind, from the world. So um, Israel failed to properly handle the word, and so Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 kicks off the consequences for their failure to properly handle the word. All right, uh, verse, let's read verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. Rather, your seed shall be called through Isaac. And we already discussed a little bit of that. Now, verses, uh, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel. It, that reminds me of what it says in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, where it says, so what if some did not trust? In other words, what if some of Israel didn't trust? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? 
just because there's some of some of Israel that's not obedient to God's word, does that mean that uh, their lack of faith nullifies God's faithfulness? Verse four, may it never be. Let God be true. If every man is a liar, as it is written, that you, that you may be righteous in your words and, pre and prevail when you are judged. All right. So now verse 7 quotes from Genesis 21, verses 10 through 12. And verse 7 says, Now are they all children because they are Abraham's seed? Rather, your seed shall be called through Isaac. So that's a quote uh, pulled from Genesis uh, 21, uh, 10 through 12, but also through Genesis 18, 10 and 14. Now, verse 8 that is, that, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, rather children of the promise who are counted as seed. All right, so now we know that Abraham had more children than just Ishmael and Isaac. I mean, there's a whole litany, and one of those children are Midian. And who did Midian become? Midian became, you know, eventually we, we heard of Jethro, the Midianite, the priest of Midian, which become Moses's father-in-law. I mean, he's from the seed of Abraham, but he's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. He's not a Hebrew per se. Even though he comes from Abraham, Ishmael the same way. Ishmael became the Arab people. They're sons of, Ish uh, they're sons of uh, Abraham, but they're not sons of the promise. They're not uh, they're not like Isaac. They're different from Isaac, even though they are sons of Abraham. So according to the flesh would be all those that were descended from Abraham that did not receive that responsibility to carry on, carry on the spiritual mission of Abraham and the oracles and the promises and all the covenants. Because all those covenants, all those oracles, all those promises were given specifically to Isaac's line. So it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from Jacob came the 12 tribes. And that's who we know is Israel today. So did the Gentiles come from Ishmael? Ishmael would be one of the Gentiles. Okay. Um, so yeah, you would consider, even though they're Abraham's children, they would be considered Gentiles. Because Gentile is just, basically Gentile just means nations. Yeah. So you have some of Abraham's children that are Gentile. But you also have Gentiles that are not even of Abraham. So Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem fathered uh, Abraham, you know, he eventually fathered Abraham. So Abraham comes from Shem. And so we know from Shem comes the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, but also from Shem come the Arabs. Then you have uh, Ham, which is the Canaanite people, but also all of the African peoples. They're Gentiles. And then you have Japheth, which is all the Asian and Caucasian uh, peoples. Uh, they are from Japheth. They are Gentiles too. So that was a good question. Uh, all right. Let's see here. All right, let me read verse 8 again. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Rather, children of the promise are counted as seed. So children of the promise means the ones who are, that are elect, the ones that are predestined. And that was Isaac. And that was by God's choice. And we see God choosing all the time between brothers. He chose Abel over Cain. And then Cain killed Abel, and then Seth came along, and he went with the line of Seth. You see Jacob and Esau, twins. 
born of the same parents, were conceived at the exact same time. But yet it was Jacob, not Esau, that, that continued on the spiritual blessings and the spiritual birthright. Uh, you know, not uh, Jacob, not Esau. Okay. All right, moving on, verse 9. For the word of promise is this, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So that's quoting from Genesis, from the Genesis account where God came and had two angels with him and was about ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, when I come back again around the same time, you're going to have a son. Sarah laughed. God caught her laughing, called her out. Oh, no, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, yeah, she did. Uh, so that's kind of where that comes from. Verse 10. And not only this, but also Rebecca having twins. And we just talked about this. Having twins, Jacob and Esau, right? From one act with our father Isaac. Same father and mother conceived at the same time. Same sperm and egg. It was just divided and split and become twins. Yet before the sons were even born and not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose and choice might stand, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, everybody gets that confused. Because back then, and in the language of the scriptures, love and hate were comparative terms. They weren't absolute terms. We use them as absolute terms. Oh, I just love pizza, but I hate Brussels sprouts. Right? So there's a big difference, but um, it's basically I prefer one over the other. I favor one over the other. So it's not necessarily this westernized thinking of love and hate that we think of. It's like, well, I just prefer this one over that one. So, you know, there's no rationalizing God's choice of Jacob over Esau. I mean, sure, the Bible clearly states that Esau was a bad egg. He was very selfish, yada, yada, yada. But Jacob was no Boy Scout. He was called the trickster. You know, he had his own baggage. He had his own problems, his own sins. So it's not because one was better than the other, one was gooder than the other. It was just simply God's choice, and that's the way it is. That's called being elect. That's called predestination. How can God do that? Because he's omniscient. He knows the future from beginning to the end. He knows the timeline. He can see ahead. He can forecast ahead and know what's going to happen. He knows what choices we're going to make and what possible choices we could have made and how those would have ended up. He knows every single aspect of the timeline and possible timelines uh, and, and timelines that never come to pass. So this is what Paul is stressing in, in Romans 9, that God is sovereign. But in his sovereignty, he's fair, he's holy, he's just. There's no sense in even trying to figure out or rationalize why God makes decisions that he makes. Because he's infinite. We're finite, we, meaning we have limitations. How can something limited comprehend something infinite? You can't. We're always going to fall short. And so we just, we just know that because God is holy, therefore he's loving and just, he's always going to do the right thing. So we can rest assured that whatever decisions he makes as far as elect and predestination, it's going to be right, holy, just, and fair. 
Now, I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't believe in predestination that God says, mm, this one's saved, that one goes to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven. Mm, okay, well, you're going to go to hell. I don't believe that. I believe God created us with free will. He created us with a choice. It is our choice if we're going to go to heaven or not. It's not an issue of predestination. Even though um, Cain was not predestined to be the spiritual patriarch or carry on of God's covenants and promises, doesn't mean that Cain was predestined for hell. He made his choices, and God even warned him, sin is crouching at your door, and it wants, to, it wants to overtake you. But you must overcome it, meaning he had a choice. He had a chance. Same with Esau. He had choices and chances to make, and God honors our free will. God is not going to go against our free will because you can't mess up God's plans. When God has a plan, guess what? He has a plan B to back up that plan A. God has a perfect will. God has a permissive will. Let me give you a perfect example of that. Let me give you a perfect example of that. So, it was God's perfect will for Israel to immediately go in and take the promised land. After they left Egypt and they got to the border and they spied out the land, it was God's will for them to take it right then. But did that happen? No, no because Israel said, we're scared. There's giants. We're not going to do it. Fine. It's not going not to hinder my plans. Just go walk around in a big circle for 40 years and come back again and we'll discuss this. God has a plan B. We can't mess up God's plans. We can go against God's will, but God's going to always find a way to bring it back around. He's got a plan B, so that's the good news. Uh, okay, kind of lost my place here, but that's all right. All right, verses um, 10, and, 10 through 13. And not only this, but also Rebekah having twins from one act with our father Isaac. Yep. Now get this. This is just a little kind of tiny piece here. This shows you who this letter was written to. You see Romans, so we automatically think Gentiles. But no, no, what does Paul say? And not only this, but also Rebecca having twins from one act with our father. He's talking to the Jewish people that are in the Roman congregations. So it was pre predominantly written to Jewish believers, but also Gentiles who've been grafted in. But first and foremost, it was to the Jewish believers of Rome. With our father Isaac, yet before the sons were even born, and had not any uh, good, anything good or bad, so that God's purpose and choice might stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And as it is said, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. So, here's a lesson. People are victims of their own choice. People are victims of their own choice, and, and we kind of uh, explored that a little bit with talking about Cain and about Jacob and Esau. Um, all right, so God, uh, God's favor or hate is determined by our choices. If we're obedient, we're favored, we're loved. If we're disobedient, we're unfavored, or in the extreme Hebraic terminology, hated. Not hated as we think of in the Western sense of the word. It's more of a preference. But it sounds harsh to our ears because we have these absolute terms of love and hate. I love pizza and I hate Brussels sprouts. 
but yet it's better to say maybe it'd be better translated favored or preferred and you know not favored or not preferred maybe that would make a little bit more sense to our western ears uh okay god's chosen people still have to choose to be his chosen people so even though that god predestined god elected israel israel still has to make a choice not all of them are going to make the same choice all the individuals that make up the whole are not going to be on the same page some are going to be disobedient some are going to follow paganism some are going to be atheists some are just going to fall away some are going to be actually god said it's only going to be a remnant that's going to be faithful a remnant that's going to carry on so and and i've said this before that people say well that's not fair you know the jews are god's chosen people the jews don't even see it that way we don't even see it as being God's chosen people. We see it as being the choosing people because there is a rabbinic legend that God offered his covenants, offered his Torah to all the other nations. And they're like, nah, we're good until they came to Israel and Israel said, yeah, sure. Why not? But it's kind of funny that even though Israel accepted in the process of Israel accepting and being chosen by God, the whole world chose with them because it was the mixed multitude that were there at Sinai when the law was given, he says, will you, will, will you choose to, to, to be my chosen people? Yeah, sure. And the mixed multitude, said, mixed multitude said, yeah, we will too. So that's taken from Exodus chapter 12, 38 and 19, 8. So I'm going to read this little blurb from one of my tracks. At the foot of Sinai, when the law was given, not only Israel was there to receive it, but also the mixed multitude that was with them. They too accepted the law upon themselves. That mixed multitude comprised at least of one representative from the 70 root nations of the world. So again, all mankind accepted God's laws upon themselves. So uh, even though that the Jews, the, you know, the, the Israel is God's chosen people, Gentiles can choose to be his as well. It's our choice. The Gentiles can be grafted in. They can choose to be a part of Israel. Uh, okay, so Romans, I want to read a little passage here. Maybe that might help solidify things a little bit. In Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, it says, For one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible in the flesh. So remember that here Paul is bringing the, the concept of a spiritual Jew, somebody who is Jewish on the inside but not DNA on the outside. But he's even saying that it's, you know, the outside doesn't matter because we already discussed the principles of spiritual circumcision is, is already established in the Old Testament before it was even brought up again in the New Testament. People just read it in the New Testament thinking it's a new concept. But no, if you go back to the past classes, I show very clearly that spiritual circumcision or circumcision of the heart um, was, was a, a thing even before the New Testament. For one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible in the flesh. Rather, the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart and spirit, not in letter. His praising is not from men, but from God. And so Paul, I think it's Paul who also says that in Christ, and I forget the citation of the verse, but there is no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no Greek, no barbarian. We're all one in Messiah. We're all on the same level playing field, spiritually speaking. So God's sovereignty and perfect foreknowledge is how he makes um, and discern, uh, makes decisions. 
and how he chooses, makes choices. It's, it's all about that. It's about grace, not about merit. He's God, he's holy, he's fair, and he's just. Moving on to verse 14. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Okay, Paul loves to ask questions, and the majority of them are rhetorical questions. They, they don't even need an answer. They're obvious. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For to Moses he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that is a quote from Exodus uh, thirteen nineteen. Now, it is well known in Judaism that when somebody quotes a verse, that whatever verse they quote, they're encompassing that particular paragraph, that particular thought, or that particular chapter. So they're implying all of it. So when Yeshua was, was crying from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They, you can't just take it on that. He was implying the entire psalm. That he was quoting and the psalm actually ends in victory so you know it's kind of good to read that in context so we just don't want to focus on verse 19 of chapter 33 we want to focus on verses 13 through 19. so exodus chapter 33 i'll just turn there real quick read that all right exodus chapter 33 beginning with verse 13. Instead, you must... Nope, that's 34. All right, here we go. Now then, I pray, if I have found grace in your eyes, show me your ways, so that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. So here's, here's kind of a little side note. Show me your ways. So that I may know you. What's the purpose in reading the Bible? Is it so, so we'll know God. Not so we can become better people and people think well of us and that we can be some kind of a spiritual authority mucky muck. No. The purpose of reading God's word and knowing God's word is so that we can know him. If I found grace in your eyes, show me your ways so that I might know you. So that I might find favor in your sight. So the Bible is the key to pleasing God. Through faith, obviously, because without faith it is impossible to please God. But if you want to know what God expects of you, read his word. Not some of it, not part of it, not cherry pick it, all of it. Consider also that this nation is your people. My presence, and then God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, he answered. But then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, um, does not go with me, do not let... Do not let us go up from here. For how would it be known that I or your people have found favor in your sight? Isn't it because you go with us that distinguishes us from all the peoples on the face of the earth? Verse 17, Adonai answered Moses, I will also do what you have said, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Then he said, Please show me your glory. And then here's the verse that's quoted in Romans. So he said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you and call out the name Adonai before you. I will be gracious toward whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I, on whom I will be merciful. So that's the quote from uh, Romans here in verse 15, where he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Okay. 
So the thrust is to um, the thrust is show me your ways, show me you know your laws that I might know you and know what to do. So show me how I can be obedient to you and not disobedient to you. All right, moving on to verse sixteen through eighteen. So then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who strives, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, so my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. All right, so now we're talking about Pharaoh. And it's interesting that in Exodus chapter 421, it says, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's kind of an idiomatic thing. It's not necessarily that God hardened his heart per se, but he allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. He didn't stop it from being hardened. And then you have Exodus 8.11, which says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And three times afterwards, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So again, Paul is focusing on people's free will choice. And the balance between God's predestination, God's uh, uh, election, and God's uh, in, in honoring at the same time our free will. So it's like, even though that predestination and free will seem like juxtaposed opposites, they're actually complementary. They need one another. They go hand in hand. It's like peanut butter and jelly, like chocolate and peanut butter. You can't have one without the other. You've got to have both. Uh, okay. Now, so where it says that um, God, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that's just one of many idioms in the word of God. Another one is send them a strong delusion, gave them over to vile affections. These were common idioms understood by the Hebrew people. Now, kind of like hardening, hardening your own heart or a God hardening the heart and you hardening your own heart. The illustration I like to give is there's a child that's already made a decision. He's going to try smoking. He's seen other people do it. He's seen all his, his heroes and celebrities do it. He makes them look cool, makes them look grown up. So he's going to smoke. But he's not going to tell his parents about it. Of course not. He's going to do it in secret. And he's going to be all cool and he's going to be rebellious or whatever. So he's been smoking for a little bit. He you know, steals maybe cigarettes from his parents or whatever and then goes, runs behind the, the – or steals a pack from the convenience store, runs behind the garage. He's puffing away, thinking he's big and bad. Well, his dad's outside doing yard work, turns the corner, and there his son is, smoking cigarette. Oh, so you want to smoke, huh? Well, let me see your pack of cigarettes there. Kid shakingly and fearingly pulls them out. He's, all right, you want to smoke? Go ahead and smoke. But you're going to sit here right now, and you're going to smoke the whole pack right now in front of me. So on the one hand, the, the child had hardened his own heart, may, already made that decision, I'm going to smoke. Father says, fine, you want it that way? You're going to know what it means to have it that way. I'm going to harden your own heart. I'm going to harden your heart further, kind of. You want to smoke? Smoke them all right now. See, God teaches us lessons by allowing our hearts to be hardened and hardening our hearts. Because we come to a breaking point where we realize we're idiots, we're fools. Because at the end of it all, Pharaoh's like, I've sinned. I'm going to let your people go. I've sinned. Ask God to forgive me. Petition God on my behalf. And then he's like, what did I just do letting this free workforce go? And he goes, chases him, and drowns in the sea. Uh, okay. 
Now, there are various Talmudic passages that kind of backs this up about God honoring our, our free will. In Bechot 10b, it's in the Babylonian Talmud, it says, When a man wishes to walk, or where a man wishes to walk, he will be guided. And then in Shabbat 104a, if a man goes to defile himself, an opening is made for him. If to purify, help is afforded to him. So God respects our free will. I already given the example of that even that our free will can in no wise mess up God's plan. Can't thwart God's plan. There's God's perfect will and God's permissive will. God's perfect will is plan A. God's permissive will is plan B. I want you to take the promised land as soon as you leave Egypt. Nope. There's giants. We're scared. Fine. Plan B. Walk around the desert 40 years. All the old folks die off. The new generation will take it. Or when God says, I want to be your king. I want you to be a different nation than any other nation. All the other nations have kings. I want to be your king. No, 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 no. We want to be like the other nations. Ticked Samuel off? Guys, you're idiots. He's going to take your children and they're going to be your baker, his bakers. He's going to, you know, uh, conscript your sons for warfare. And, you know, he's going to tax you guys into oblivion. No, God wants to be your king. He took it personally. He took it as that they were, and God said, no, 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 Samuel, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They want to have a king? I'm going to give them a king. I'm going to give them the exact kind of king they want. What did the other nations, the Canaanite nations around them have? They had kings, but what kind of kings? Nephilim kings. Kings that were giants. So was, was uh, King Saul a midget? No, it said he was a head and shoulder taller than anybody else. He looked like a Nephilim. They wanted, they God will answer our prayers and grant our desires in specificity. They said, we want a king like the other nations around us. Oh, the other nations have giant kings. I'll give you a giant king. I'm going to give you Saul. He's a head and, tall, a head and shoulder taller than anybody else. So he gave them exactly what, what they wanted. But did, did this mess up God's plan? No, I'm going to work with plan B. I want to be your king, but I'm going to work with a plan B. You want a physical king? Fine. And through the, the kingly dynasty of David, whom David took over Saul's position, who came from David? Solomon. Solomon, who came, who eventually, Jesus. He is the king of the Jews, died on the cross with that conviction, king of the Jews, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to come back. He's going to reign from the rebuilt temple. He's going to fulfill all the prophecies. But God worked with the plan B in allowing a human king. And through a human king came a, a human Messiah who is fully man but yet fully God. So you can't mess up or thwart God's, God's plans. Okay, just looking at the time. We still got plenty of time here. Uh, okay. Now we get into, uh, all right, so we talked about uh, Jacob and Esau. We talked about Moses and Pharaoh. Now we're moving on to a section, verses 19 through 23. It's like a little parable about the potter and the clay. So beginning with verse 19, it says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But who in the world are you, O man, who talks back to God? 
Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why do you make me like this? Does the potter have no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another vessel for common use? So here's the example. And a lot of Calvinists get hung up on this as well. God makes vessels for glory and vessels for destruction. So he chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. No, it's talking about one lump of clay, but from that one lump of clay, you separate that lump of clay. It was one lump of clay, now it's two. But they came from the same place. He puts one on the potter's well and says, you know what? I'm going to make a watering jar. And so he forms it, makes a watering jar. And that's, what, that's all it's used for. And, that, and, and it's glory. It's predestined by the potter to be a water jar. The other clay, he's like, you know, okay, now we've got plenty of water. We, 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 need, we, need, uh, we need another clay pot, but this one can be used for whatever. We need to make it so if I wanted to carry nails in it, I can carry nails. If I wanted to carry slop for the chickens, I can carry slop for the chickens. It doesn't matter. That would be a vessel of destruction, a vessel for common use. But it comes from the same clay. We all come from the same place. But yet some of us are going to go to heaven. Some of us are going to go to hell. But we all come from the same place. That was God's choice. Where we end up is, is our own decisions. It's, it's, it's not of God's will. Uh, uh, you know, it's our will, our free will, where we end up, even though that God knows ahead of time. But he still offers that and opens that up for us. All right, so uh, where did I leave off here? Okay, verse 22. Now, what if God, willingly willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath designed for destruction? And what if uh, he did so to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared from beforehand for glory? Now, let me give let me let me make a challenge some of the Calvinists on their predestination. OK, let's just forgive them for argument's sake that all these apply to salvation issues and not apply to, um, you know, Israel being elect. So to me, it still seems very unfair that God says, hmm. I think this guy's going to go to heaven. This guy's going to go to hell, even though we all come from the same place. It's just God's choice. Can't question it. In reality, as far as mortal beings go, who is predestined for heaven and who is predestined for hell? We know that everybody has a free will to choose. But who in reality, let me give you a little hint based on Genesis 6, who is predestined for heaven and who is predestined for hell? Human beings are predestined for heaven. The Bible says that hell is created for the devil and his angels. Human beings are not predestined to hell. God doesn't predestine anybody to hell. But guess who went to hell that had physical bodies? The Nephilim. They were half human, half angel. What does that mean? It means they were outside of God's created order. God didn't create them. The fallen angels who had free will decided to rebel against God, knew about the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 that a Messiah would come. Well, in that case, let's, let's pollute the human genome so that the Messiah has no chance to come. God created man in his own image. We're going to create man in our image. Let's, get as many, let's impregnate as many human women as possible, guys. And they did, and the giants came as a result. But did that thwart God's plan? Did that mess things up? No, God sent a flood, wiped them all out. So physically, you know, the, these, these Nephilim were predestined for hell because they weren't created in the image of God. 
They were born of men and of angels. So if you want to say predestination and salvation sense, then human beings are predestined for heaven, though it's our choice to go there or not. Nephilim, demons, they're predestined for hell because they're outside of God's created order. They weren't created by God or in his image. They were created from the fallen angels. And so once their bodies were destroyed in the flood, their spirits are now disembodied and they are what is demons today. They eventually will go into the lake of fire. They eventually will be thrown into hell for all eternity. They will be judged. That's why when the demons encountered Jesus, they would say, have you come to punish us before the time? Before the time of final judgment is what they're implying. When they know that they're going to be thrown into hell, they're going to get their physical bodies back. They're going to be resurrected. Just like human beings who choose to go to hell by denying God and refusing his salvation, they're going to be resurrected with bodies that are going to be able to burn forever. Same with the Nephilim. They're going to be burning forever in hell just like every other uh, pure blood human being. They're not going to be the ones that are tormenting people as they are now in hell. They're the tormentors in hell. You know, they think they rule the roost, but one day they're going to be a part of that scenario themselves. Uh, okay, that was a major bunny trail. All right, so now, okay, we may have to pick up the rest later, but I want to finish this whole thought about the potter and the clay. This reminds me of what is written in the prophets. So in um, Isaiah, let me see if I can find it here. So in Isaiah, he has a lot to say about pottery. In Isaiah 29, 16, 29, 16, your perversity, should the potter be regarded the same as the clay? Should the thing made say to its maker, why, why did uh, you did not make me? Boy, I butchered that. Your perversity. Should the potter regard, be regarded the same as the clay? Should the thing made say to its maker, you did not make me? Or the thing formed say to its former, you have no understanding? And then also in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9, it says, Oi, to one who quarrels with his maker. Like a pot among the pots of the earth, shall the clay say to the potter, what, what have you made? Or does the work say, or does your work say, it has no handles? Okay, so we see in the instance of Isaiah that he has, he has something to say about pottery and about clay. Now, verse 21 of Romans uh, 9 it's interesting because we've already discovered that Paul not only quotes from the Old Testament, obviously the Tanakh, but he also quotes from apocryphal literature. He's quoted before, I think, from the wisdom of Solomon, and here again he quotes from the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 12, verse 20, and chapter 15, verse 17, and that's kind of extrapolated from um, the 21st verse of chapter 9. Does the potter have no rights over the clay? to make the same lump, one vessel for honor and another for common use. That's found in the wisdom of Solomon. Now, not only did Isaiah have something to say about pottery, about potters and using pottery as an example, so did Jeremiah. Jeremiah the weeping prophet, Yeremiahu. 
He said in chapter 18, The word came to Jeremiah from Adonai, saying, Arise! And go to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making a work on the wheel. Whenever the pot that he was making, uh, that he was making from clay became flawed, became flawed. The potter didn't put the flaw in the clay. The clay become flawed. So we always think that clay has no choice. But clay does kind of have a mind of its own. You just can't slap a thing of clay on the wheel and will it to be a vessel. You have to mold it. You have to form it. But as you're molding it, gravity wants to take over and other forces want to take over and make it back into a just lump of clay. It wants to revert back to its original form and shape. And the potter has to go against the will of the clay, so to speak, and mold it into what he wants it to be. So clay does kind of have a mind of its own. If you've played with Play-Doh, you know that you, know, you have to put it in a mold or it's just going to take whatever form gravity decides to take from it. Whenever the pot that, was, that he was making from the clay became flawed in, his, in the hand of the potter, he remade it into another pot as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of Adonai came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? So we know that Israel resisted God all the time. They weren't, you know, submissive and say, okay, just mold us into whatever you want. He had a hard time molding Israel into what they should be. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares Adonai. Behold, as the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, what does God use to mold Israel into the image he wants? He uses negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement, when the clay does what it's supposed to or what the potter wants, yay, there's rewards, there's blessings. Whenever the clay and the pot doesn't do what God wants, negative reinforcement. Here's some things that you don't like so well. Boo, curses. So God uses positive and negative reinforcement as the hands that mold the clay into the what he wants it to be. So that's how he can, you know, um, work on the will of the clay and how God works on the will of Israel. Behold, as the hand in the potter, as the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may speak about a nation or about a kingdom to uproot and to pull down or to destroy it. But if that nation turns from their evil because of what I have spoken against it, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to do to it. Or at another time, I may speak about a nation or about a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. But if, that, but if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had said I would do. So now speak to the people of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Adonai, I am about to bring calamity against you and devise disaster against you. Turn back now everyone from its evil way and amend your ways and your doings but they say it's hopeless so we will walk after our own plans each of us will act in uh, stubbornness of his evil heart so when israel was not being the clay that god wanted it to be having a hard time molding israel god would rise up a nation against israel to attack it to punish it to bring it into exile 
So those other nations would be performing God's will as far as cursing and punishing Israel. But what always happened is these nations would go a little bit too far. Hey, I told you to punish them, not to slaughter them. What are you doing? Now I'm going to have to get on your case. So then God gets on the nation that he chose to come against Israel. And when they've gone too far in punishing Israel, he punishes that nation. Don't you touch my anointed. I only told you to do this much. And you went further. You went further than you were supposed to. So see how all that works? All right. Okay, verses, uh, we left off at verse 24, I think. Yeah, verse 24. Even us he called, not only from the Jewish people, but also from the Gentiles. He said, now, it's interesting. Remember I said early in Romans that when we've got to make, we've got to make, uh, understand what Paul's talking about when he says law and when he says Gentiles. Because there's only one word for law in the Greek. You'd be talking about rabbinic law, mosaic law, man-made law, laws of nature. So when he's talking about Gentiles, we've got to determine who's, who's he talking about. Is he talking about Gentiles as in Ham and Japheth and those nations? Or is he talking about Gentiles in the sense of Israel assimilating and becoming like Gentiles? They've assimilated because they've been lost in Assyrian captivity, the ten tribes. They've lost their identity. They're just like Gentiles now. No different than Gentiles, even though they're from Abraham. So we've got to understand who he's talking about here. Even us he called, not only the Jewish people, but also from the Gentiles. As he said in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and those who are not loved, beloved. If you go back to Hosea, he's talking about rebellious Israel. He's not talking about Gentiles in the sense of non-Jews, non-Hebrews. And it, and it shall be that in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant shall be saved. For Adonai will carry out his word upon the earth, bringing it to, a, to an end and finishing quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless Adonai Zebaoth, the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would be as... We would become like Sodom and resemble Gomorrah. Yeah, from the 12 tribes yeah. in Revelation. Yeah. Right. That's a remnant. Yeah. That's a remnant. Now, also, in Hosea uh, chapters 1 and 2, it talks about all this. And there is, there all, there is also a passage in Isaiah 8.23 that talks about Zebulun and Naphtali. And how, you know, that God's going to send his light to the borders of, you know, that Zebulun and Naphtali has seen a great light or whatever. Um, now, it's interesting that Zebulun and Naphtali were called the land of the Gentiles. Because they, they've, they've assimilated, right? I mean, when Jesus uh, was ministering, he said, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they were ministering to Jews and those who they could still recognize as they were assimilated, but they were of Hebrew stock. Okay. So only a remnant of Gentile-loving Israel will return to the faith in Judah's God. So it was Israel who broke away and was assimilated as if they become Gentiles, the ten tribes. 
but they're going to be they're going to come back prophecy says that they're going to come back but only a remnant's going to come back and they're going to come back to an understanding of the jewish faith which judah they never left the lord they rebelled against god but judah is who we call jews today they are still recognizable because they they went off to babylonian captivity but returned after they have repented uh okay really pushing for time here so we're gonna have to pick up a little bit of it later but i still want to finish this thought up here about israel being one again so there is a prophecy what what song do we sing here at harvest house on uh saturday nights we call out to dry bones come alive come alive right so where does that come from so it comes from one of the prophets. Ezekiel. That's right, Ezekiel. That's right, Ezekiel chapter 37. So Ezekiel chapter 37 talks about those dry bones, and that's talking about the regathering of Israel, of Judah and of Israel, the ten tribes that are lost in Assyrian captivity and kind of assimilated uh assimilated into um the gentile nations and become virtually indistinguishable now there are hints now the reason that the tribes are coming back is because even though they assimilated into the nations that they've ended up in there's still something different about them to where the rest of the world still doesn't accept them the ibus are persecuted among the nigerians out of all the other tribes because there's something different about them because they're hebrews you know, there's, there's remnants of Hebrews in China, remnants of Hebrews in Japan, remnants of Hebrews in India. They've assimilated into those cultures. They look like those people, but there's certain aspects of their own dialect and culture that separate them where they're like, ah, they say they're us, but they're really not us. And so these are part of the lost tribes. Now, this is what, after the whole dry bones thing in Ezekiel 37, it goes into this scenario about a stick. So in verse 15, the word of Adonai came to me saying, You, O son of man, take one stick and write on it, Judah. For the children of Israel joined with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And all the house of Israel joined with him. So one stick represents Judah, the kingdom of Judah. The other stick represents the lost ten tribes. Join them one to another for yourself as one stick so that they will become one in your hand. So this is talking about the reunification of Israel, Jew and Gentile. It's about the Gentile Israelites waking up, realizing who they are in their Gentile lands and saying, hey, we wanna come back home. Now, there have some have argued that the story of the prodigal son is that story. The prodigal son is the 10 tribes. We want our inheritance now and we wanna leave. Okay, go. So what does this prodigal son end up doing? He ends up slopping pigs. He's a Hebrew. He's Jewish. What is he doing slopping pigs? He became a Gentile. And he says, okay, he wakes up in his pig pen, in his Gentile state. Say, I'm going to go back home. But the, the son who never left is like, what, what, what are you doing accepting this guy back here? He went out and spent your whole inheritance with hookers and all this kind of stuff. Blew your money. No, you don't understand, son. You don't understand, Judah. You've always been here. You've always been obedient to me. You could have had a party anytime you wanted. You could have invited all your friends. Anything that I had was always yours. But my son, who I thought is dead, is alive, and he's come back home. We should rejoice with him.
But no, Judah's jealous. I'm not coming to the party. That's happening right now. There are tribes that are coming out of the Gentile nation saying, we're Hebrews and we can prove it. Uh, you have to do a little bit better than that. Now, some of them have made immigration to Israel, some, some from Ethiopia, some from Nigeria, you know, some from India, but they're very, very reluctant to accept them as full-fledged Jews. And even when they do become converted and do come in and are considered Jews, they're still treated differently. Not like a native Jew or a native Israeli or what have you, you know. So, but the prophecy also says, and I can't remember where it is, that there's going to come a point in the future where Judah will no longer be jealous of Israel and vice versa. So they will come and they will be fully reinstated into Israel. See, the catch is now. Well, okay, if you really want to be part of us again and you really claim you're a lost tribe, you can be a part of us as long as you deny Messiah. And there are a lot of them are like, no, we know who we are and we don't know who the Messiah is. So we're, we're sorry. So a lot of them are staying in their Gentile lands because they're not willing to give up who the Messiah is. Okay. Wow, we almost got through the entire chapter. Uh, we're going to have to pick up Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. Or do you just want to go ahead and tackle that so we can go on to 10? Okay, well, we'll go on and we'll finish it out. It'll be a little bit of a longer class, but at least we'll get through 9. All right, so verse 30. 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, that is, a righteousness of faith. But Israel, who pursued a Torah of righteousness, did not reach the Torah. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were from works. They stumbled over the stone of stumbling, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Let's go back to verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, that is, a righteousness of faith. So he's talking both here about Gentiles and Gentile Israel. Gentile Israel being the lost tribes, ten tribes that assimilated into the places where they ended up. So they learned that expressing their heart through faith and that heart through faith resulted in good works. So that's why they were accepted and they attained righteousness because the righteousness first sprung up in their heart and manifested into physical, tangible works. It was the opposite with Israel, meaning the Jewish nation, because the, the, the place that Rome occupied was Israel, the nation of Israel at that time. So in this instance, Israel is not referring to the lost in tribes or that particular kingdom, but the Jewish nation uh, that they were in at that point. But Israel, who pursued Torah of righteousness, did not reach Torah. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but from works. So instead of letting God's word change them from the inside out, they expected the word of God to change them from the outside in. So they were performing all these good works, but it wasn't doing anything changing them on the inside. It wasn't changing them from the inside out. And so that's, you know, what happened a lot with the, the Jewish nation, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right. All right, verse uh, 32. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were from works. They stumbled over the stone of stumbling. Uh, okay. So, you know, the, 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 Jew, the Jewish people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they depended upon their genetics, were sons of Abraham. They depended upon their temple, upon their synagogues. 
and their lineage um, and their rabbinic additions to, uh, uh, to added on to the simple instructions of God to make them right before God. So it was a false uh, faith, a false religion based on works, basically. Uh, okay, so we already established that. All right, uh, verse 33. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. This is a quote from Isaiah 28:16. Yeshua, the living instructions of God, who showed us how to obey uh, by living by faith. So there's the written word and there's the living word. The written word, you know, you can interpret it in a lot of ways. But Yeshua, the living word, showed what the true interpretation of the written word was by living it and acting it out before us. So it's like I can go to Ikea and buy a shelf and put it together by the instructions. And I can overanalyze the instructions and maybe read things into the instructions that may not be there. And my understanding of the instructions may be flawed and I'm having a hard time putting this shelf together because of my own brain and my own, my own interpretation of the instructions. And somebody comes along and says, let me show you how to put it together. I put one together last week. Let me show you how. And they show me how. And I'm like, oh, I get it now. Because they showed me how to do it. And that's what Yeshua did with the Torah. It's been interpreted 17 different ways from Sunday because there's so many different sects of Judaism and interpretations of the Torah. But yet Yeshua came and said, let me give you the true, honest, simple interpretation. Let me live it out before you and show you how to live it. So you know how to please God, so you can get closer to God, so you can obey his word and enjoy the blessing and not the cursings. All right, finished it up. Let's go ahead and uh, close in a word of prayer. Oh, Ten minutes over, that's not too bad. Lord, we want to thank you for your awesome word and that now we understand a little bit better what Paul was saying when he was referring to the elect and those that are predestined. And how easily it can get confused when we interpret the scriptures through our western mindset and not a Eastern Hebraic mindset. So Lord, continue to enlighten us as we continue to trudge through uh, joyfully through the letter of Romans and uh, help us to understand and, and assimilate what we've learned today and apply it to our lives. We ask and pray and give thanks for these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.